Before we start today, um, I just want to talk about um, sermon notes, okay? I know some people, in fact, how many of you, when you were in class, loved to take notes? How many of you, as a just total distraction, you hated taking notes? Okay, <laughs> okay, that's good. You have every freedom to take notes or not take notes in this setting, okay? You'll notice on the back of the program, we always have fill-in-the-blank notes. We're going to be moving fast today, and so if you miss some of the notes or you don't want to take notes, but you want to bring home notes, there are notes at the back you can grab, has all the blanks filled in, all the scripture verses, all those things. You can grab one on the way out. We'll try to do that, especially the next three messages. We're going to be looking at the sixth commandment, uh, thou shalt not kill. And we're going to be looking at three primary contemporary applications to that. And so we're taking a lot of time on this commandment because it's a very, very big deal today. We live in a violent world. You turn on the evening news, open up a newspaper, go online. There's not a day that goes by that we don't see accounts of a life taken or something happened, death of some sort. We see the slaughter of innocent women and children in Israel, this horrible thing that's happened around Gaza and southern Israel. The deaths of innocent people at the hand of violent and depraved people. The question is, why is this violence always in the news? Because life is cheap? No, it's because life is valuable. Life is valuable. Human life is so valuable that we instantly hear if it is snuffed out, whether it's a, a plane crash, an earthquake, a tsunami, casualties of a hurricane or a tornado. All makes the news because life is a big deal. And it's very important that we understand the value of human life. When it is taken, we hear about it pretty quickly. Does anybody deserve death or to die? Is anyone justified in taking the law into their own hands? And is there ever a time, a time to kill? Most of us live in nice, safe neighborhoods, distance from murder and mayhem. But for some, killing is a daily occurrence, depending on where they live. We live in a violent world, and in America today, there is on average a murder every seven seconds in our country. Why does this happen? How, how can we make sense of this particular issue? As we continue looking at the Ten Commandments, God's top ten, it's about relationships. I hope that we can learn what God says about the taking of human life. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God vertical. The last six deal with our relationship with other people horizontal. And this message today deals with the sixth commandment. We're going, to look, we're going to actually take three messages, three Sundays, on this simple commandment, you shall not commit murder. This, this, this message is going to be the foundation of the, of the commandment, and we're going to look at the number one issue that usually comes out of that, that's capital punishment, capital punishment. Next, we'll deal with abortion, the abortion dilemma, asking questions, who decides questions of life and death? What is our foundation for truth? Is the unborn child a human being? When does life begin? 
is the taking of an unborn's life ever justified? Now, I know the Supreme Court passed a law. They passed it saying that we can't outlaw abortion, but it's still very much alive. And we need to know what the Bible says about that. And then we'll deal with war, military service, and non-resistance in the third message. As we approach these issues, we need to ask, what does the Bible say? What is the, does the Bible address all these? Yes, it does. All of these issues. In these issues are standards of morality, right and wrong. It's not human opinion. It's not Gallup research polls. It's not movies made in Hollywood. It's not even laws passed by U.S. Congress upheld by the Supreme Court. Our standard, our standard for what is right and wrong is the Bible, the Word of God. And we must always go back to the Word of God. That's, that's what we're about, about. We're going to start today with the simple form of the commandment. Roman numeral one, the commandment in simple form. The sixth commandment says, Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Five words, four words, you shall not murder. Let's start with the foundation of this command. What's the, what's the biblical basis of this command, you shall not murder? It's Genesis 9, 6, which says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. One foundational principle that ungirds this commandment, what is that principle? We are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Now, all living creatures have a physical being or entity, but people, human beings, have something more. We have body, soul, and spirit. Humans have reasoning ability, the ability to relate to spirit, relate to God, who is spirit. People are also made in God's image. These facts are what makes life, human life so valuable. And even though we have proposals once in a while, not long ago the United Nations wanted to elevate all life forms and plants and animals to, to the same level as human beings. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. People alone are made in the image of God. And that's what makes human life uniquely valuable. That's why when a human life is taken, it's a big deal. We're valuable because God placed value on us. It's an act of God at creation. In Genesis 1.26, says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Human beings are unique creations of God, so such that life is irreplaceable, it's invaluable, and it's of the highest value in the entire universe. Some regard life as cheap. For some, killing is no big deal. Some will snuff out another's life as easily as if they're stepping on a cockroach or an ant. Why is this the case? What has happened over history? What has happened to us worldwide, as, as well as in America, to cheapen the life of human beings. Make killings no big deal. The main reason is the rejection of the biblical account of creation. That's why it's important to understand creation. The denial that, that God created people in his image, special, unique, and valuable. Which brings us to the second topic, letter B. This is the role of evolution in destroying this commandment. The role of evolution. We, we don't have the space today or time 
uh, to examine in detail all the issues of creation versus evolution. Uh, others who are great scholars have written volumes on the subject, but for Bible-believing Christians, our standard for faith and practice is the Bible, the Word of God. So how has evolution destroyed the moral imperative of you shall not murder? See, if we reject the biblical account of creation and deny that people were made in the image of God and believe that people are just a higher evolved species, then we lose the moral basis to condemn murder. We are just another animal, just, a higher, just higher up on the chain. We're just higher up on the chain of evolution. We wonder why was this such a proponent, such an aspect of, of science and secularists trying to diminish they're not trying to elevate creatures. They're trying to diminish human beings. Evolution. We're left with something that's called humanism. Humanism is a worship of man. Man is the center of the universe to begin all and end all. Mankind can make the rules. The end justifies the means. So if I make the rules, then I of Norwegian descent may decide that only Norwegians can go to college. They get to hold the best jobs and they get to run the government. And we've seen the results of man-made rules. We look at Nazi Germany, the master race. We've, we've seen all over the world the murder of Christians, the, the attempt to wipe out other races, the subjugation of entire groups of people, the United States and slavery until the 1860s, racial prejudice that still exists today. Evolution brings humanism. And in humanism, makes man the God, and he gets to make the rules. And then it's okay to kill somebody outside of my group. You don't think that's happened before? What's happening in Israel today? It's not in my group. They're not Muslim. They're not Hamas. They're not Israel. Whatever. Killing people that aren't in our group. That approach will never produce moral law of right and wrong. A husband will justify killing his wife if he can get away with it and collect life insurance. The drug lord will justify killing and protect his money or drugs. Major corporations will justify the death of innocent people at the hand of their product by placing an artificial dollar value on each life lost versus the financial cost to fix the problem. We've seen that many times with auto industry and products that we use every day. It's going to cost more to get that fixed than what a life is worth. Well, a life is invaluable. If we reject our place in created order, we lose our moral imperative. It's the cheapening of human life, making human beings just another animal of higher evolutionary order. Hitler thought it was the answer to the creation of the master race, to organize crime, it's the answer to intimidation, control for monetary gain. To humanists, murder is the answer to the handicapped children, aging parents, birth control for convenience, and comfort in life. And you look at the euthanasia, mercy killings legalized in Canada. And the percentage of people that are ki killing themselves in mercy killings has just skyrocketed. It's unbelievable. How did we get here? Murder is the taking of a human life by another human being. This is not intended to be a defense of creationism versus evolution, but I challenge you to do the research. One cannot be a biblical Christian and accept the basic beliefs of the theory of evolution. 
The whole of the Bible, the fall of man, the sin in the Garden of Eden, the need for a Savior, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, salvation of our sins through Jesus' death on the cross, all go back to Genesis and the creation, the accounts and the events in the Garden of Eden. Now, how God created, how long a creation day is, questions not likely in the Hebrew scholar's mind or the author's mind are not here. But the origin of man as a unique creation by God is non-negotiable. And without these foundational truths, the rest of the Bible, including the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, would be irrelevant, would be not necessary. So that's the foundation of this command. Now let's look at the next question. We're going to look at some practical things because we deal with this every day in one form or another. When is killing murder? Letter C. When is killing murder? All murder is killing, but it's all killing murder. Remember the, the command, you shall not murder. The Hebrew language has seven words for killing, seven. And the word used here is rasa, rasa, rasa. And Walter Kaiser writes, if any one of the seven words could signify murder, where the factors of premeditation and intentionality are present, this is the verb. Now the Bible, the Bible clearly distinguishes between planned, premeditated, intentional, deliberate killing and accidental, unplanned, unintentional killing. Not only the harm done, but the harm intended. Our laws in America differentiate between first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, and manslaughter. And it does that, and our laws reflect that distinction. So when is killing murder, and when is it not murder? Exodus 21, 12 to 14 says, Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from the altar and put him to death. This was a setup for manslaughter, accidental killing, where they could go to a city of refuge and there was an extended period of time they had to stay there after they, if they established that it was an accidental killing. So when is killing murder? Killing is murder when, number one, it's premeditated, intentional, and planned. Premeditated, intentional, and planned. This is the most common once determined and the most horrendous. Second, if it's spontaneous and unplanned, but still intentional. Still intentional. This would refer to the killing in an emotional outrage. Then, number three, if it's unintentional, and this is comparable to manslaughter today, God established the cities of refuge to accommodate the sentence and protection. An example of this in today's world would be a drunk driver who kills someone unintentionally while driving. Though they were not intending to hurt anybody, it's still murder. It's still the taking of a life. The person is still guilty, but they're given a reduced sentence or charge. That's manslaughter. Number four, accessory to murder. This refers to someone helping someone commit murder, even though they're not actually committing the crime. The person is still guilty. King David was guilty of this crime in the death of Uriah. He didn't kill him. He just was the accessory and told the guy to take him out. When is killing murder? Number five, acts of omission. 
acts of omission. This can include not warning that tobacco can kill with cancer. Tobacco companies conceal this fact for many years, and they were found liable. Another company was found at fault by knowingly selling unsafe baby car seats or flammable clothing for infants or refusing to recall a car for a safety problem that resulted in injury or death. That's called murder by omission. Omission. Kyle and Ellis write, not only is the accomplished fact of murder condemned, whether it proceeded from open violence or strategy, but every act that endangers human life, whether it arises from carelessness, wantonness, or from hatred, anger, or revenge. They go on to say life is placed at the head of these commandments, not as being the highest earthly possession, but because it is the basis of human existence. It's the image of God. Deuteronomy 22.8 talks about when you build a house, make a parapet around your roofs that you may not bring bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. So they had, you omit that parapet or safety and somebody falls off the roof, that's guilty. You're guilty. Now, it's guilt by omission. It's different. So when is killing, that's when killing is murder. When is killing not murder? When is killing not murder? Number one, it does not apply to animals. Okay? It's not applied to animals. Genesis 9.3 says, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now, we are called to be good stewards of all of God's creation, including animals. Okay? We are to treat them well. Treat them and humanely. The Bible admonishes man to treat animals humanely. However, animals and plant life were placed on earth for mankind's enjoyment, benefit, and survival. Okay? The vegetarian may say, I don't eat meat because it was once alive. Well, so is the broccoli and lettuce that you're eating right now. It's just this whole debate of whether you can eat meat or not, or vegetarian, you, you can fulfill your own conscience, but, but killing of an animal for meat, of course, saying this in Wisconsin, everybody here hunts, but that's okay. Um, that, that's, that's not murder, okay? Killing of animals doesn't, doesn't uh, have that. If we granted plants and animals the same rights as human beings, ultimately we'd starve to death ourselves, right? Okay, makes sense. We, what we have to do is carry a philosophy to the ultimate conclusion. Yeah, they say, we believe in this. Okay, well, let's just carry that to the ultimate conclusion. And yeah, how does it work? When is killing not murder? Um, number two, when defending one's home from nighttime burglars. Defending one's home from nighttime burglars. Exodus 22, two to three says, if a thief is caught breaking in and destructs so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed, but if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. This passage serves as the basis for the right of self-defense and the fence of one's home. Now, evidently, if one can see, in other words, it's daylight, there were other ways to deter the aggression without killing. But that was, you know, basically if it happened and it was dark and you didn't know what it was, you know, but it's, there's a right of self-defense. That's in the Bible. It's not just in our Constitution. It's in the Bible. Then there's accidental killings. Deuteronomy 19.5 is an interesting passage addresses an accidental killing where one man is chopping down a tree with an axe and the axe head flies off, hits someone in the head and kills him. This is established as manslaughter and the man can save his life by fleeing to the city of refuge. Okay. 
Then they evaluate. And that's what our courts decide. That's what manslaughter is for. Then there's number four is capital punishment and there's war. We'll be addressing war on the, in the last message. But let's talk about capital punishment. Let's talk about capital punishment because this from time to time is a big issue and different states deal with it at different times. Some, some have outlawed capital punishment, some still have capital punishment. Um, the Bible has capital punishment. Why? Why should crime be punished? Capital punishment is defined as the execution of criminals convicted of certain crimes, action taken by the government or the state. Now for this section, I owe a lot to, there's a, there's a man named Dr. John Eidsmo. Um, he's, a, he's an attorney, a law professor, and a personal friend of mine. And he, he did a lot of research, and I owe a lot to him in this particular section. Um, the biblical view of crime and punishment. God has delegated to human government the authority to punish crime. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. Romans 13, 1 to 5, we'll go through this very quickly. Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, he will commend you. For he is God's servant to you to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. We don't have time to exegete this whole passage. Suffice it to say, God has placed government and leaders in place of authority to carry out justice. We're not to carry out justice. The law's and government is too. Now, why did God institute capital punishment? People ask that. See, it's, 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 it's cruel and unusual. It's terrible. Is it because life is cheap? No, it's because human life is precious. Human life is so precious that if someone takes a human life, the only way to pay for it is to pay with your life. That's what God set up. He set up capital punishment. If you take someone's life the only way, it's so precious, the only way to pay for it is with yours. Why capital punishment? Why? Number one, simple justice. Romans 13, 4 says, he is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Crime must be punished for justice to occur. There has to be punishment. Otherwise, there's no justice. Second is deterrence. Deterrence. One of the major purposes of capital punishment is to deter other criminals. When one knows the price to be paid, they may stop short of the crime. That's what happens. Manfred Brauch, in, in the book Hard Sayings of Paul, he writes this about the passage in Romans 13. What is God's intent? Bad works are restrained and the good is promoted and encouraged. He says Paul's argument is this. It is God's intent that human life in the context of community will be life in harmony and peace and order. Since life in community becomes chaotic and anarchistic without the presence of regulatory laws which are enforced by authorities, the presence of these are part of God's overall intent 
for human existence. Therefore, insofar as the state and its rulers exercise their authority in keeping with God's intent, they act as God's ministers for the good, common good of society. Deterrence, deterrence was practiced and mandated in Old Testament Israel. In Deuteronomy 13 and 21, stoning was prescribed for certain sins with this statement at the end, then all Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Then all Israel will hear of it and be afraid. They said, you do that, this is what's going to happen. Well, that's going to make people stop and think. The primary reason for capital punishment is to protect the lives and safety of innocent people, innocent citizens. It has been said he threatens the innocent who spares the guilty. And you know something? Human, human nature is such that we need deterrence. We need deterrence from the time we're little children. You do that, you get spanked. You see your older brother get spanked, they go, I don't want, to, I don't want that. I, I, I'm not going to do that. Okay? There's a principle of deterrence in punishment. And, of course, capital punishment is the most severe for the most abhorrent of all sins. Consequences. I have a friend who grew up in South Africa, and he tells a story of going on a fishing trip with his with his father as a young boy. And they got to the next country over, and it was a Muslim country. And when they got there, they, they had these long bamboo poles strapped on the top of their car. And their hotel room was so small, they couldn't fit it in there. Okay? Either that's huge poles or small rooms, probably both. Okay? So they went to the proprietor of the hotel and said, do you have a place to store these overnight so nobody will steal them? And the proprietor said, they are safe. Says, nobody's going to steal them. He said, Islamic law dictates that anyone caught stealing will have their hand cut off. And no one will risk that for two fishing poles. <laughs> Deterrence. Deterrence. I'm not advocating Muslim law, but that was his experience of deterrence. There's something good to be said about deterrence. The third reason for capital punishment is to prevent private vengeance. Private vengeance. In American history, there were times and places where institutions had the authority to find a person guilty, but they had no authority to punish them. You know, in the Wild West, they could be found guilty, but they had no authority to punish them. So you find somebody guilty of it, but you can't punish them. In this instance, the person found guilty was declared outside the law, outside the law, or outside the protection of the law. That meant they were outlaws. Okay, we've seen that term, outlaws. They were considered, they, were, they had broken the law, they had committed a crime that deserved something. They weren't punished, and so now they were outlaws. The friends and relatives of the victim could then seek vengeance for the crime against their loved one. And the results were disastrous. It happened all the time. They ended up in feuds between families that lasted for many years, taking out their vengeance on outlaws. Someone had done something they really they punished, so they're going to take it out. When civil authorities have the right to find guilty and punish the guilty, it sets aside personal vengeance and actually brings true justice. When you look at the, the true justice in our constitution and laws, the real constitution and the real laws of America, you find great things. We're not to avenge ourselves. God alone has the authority 
to avenge. But he delegated that authority to human governments to try, find guilty, and then to punish. Now, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, capital punishment was prescribed. I'll just list these real quick. For the following crimes. Murder, striking and reviling a parent, Sabbath breaking, witchcraft, blasphemy, false prophecy, adultery, some forms of unchastity, rape, unnatural sex, kidnapping or man-stealing, and idolatry. Now, people would say, why don't we have capital punishment for all those sins today? Well, believe me, we would have a lot less crime, more respect for parents, family break-on would disappear, and everyone would be in church on Sunday. <laughs> Remember, this is Old Testament law. So didn't Jesus bring forgiveness? Aren't we supposed to forgive all crime and sins? Yes, but why should we still practice capital punishment, somebody asks. Because Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man by blood, man, his blood shall be shed. And that is part of the covenant, okay? The covenant is, it's not New Testament, Old Testament. It's established for humans for all times. So this law of shedding his blood was for all people for all times. How about the church age, the New Testament? Didn't Jesus' death pay for sin for all time? Even murder? Yes, yes, they did. But Jesus did not contradict the law. He expanded it. God delegated to the civil government the authority to punish a criminal for the purpose of protecting society. Romans 13 was written after the cross. A murderer can be forgiven of his sin, but still may need to pay the price. By establishing capital punishment, Society demonstrates its abhorrence of a particular crime. John Idenhoe writes. Most of us react to the thought, okay, I've never committed murder. I guess I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I guess I don't have to worry about this commandment. Well, not so fast. The next section is for all of us. This is Jesus' expansion and clarification. Yeah, Jesus always does that, doesn't he? <laughs> Expansion and clarification. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, okay? And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's interesting. Jesus, again, takes this external commandment, which most of us just say, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And he moves it to the internal. This, the outside, external, observable, physical action, he moves to the inside. He internalizes it to our hearts to include anger, hatred, thoughts of murder. Jesus never contradicted the Ten Commandments. He expanded them. If you feel like killing, and who hasn't, okay? If you feel like killing, you want to kill. Wish he or she was dead. Jesus says, ultimately, it's the same as the act. Like adultery, the thought and the desire entertained is as bad in God's eyes as the act. If murder is forbidden, Martin Luther says, so is everything that leads to it. This is a call to radical self-examination. And it should keep us from condemning others who have acted out the very thoughts that we have had. And they got caught. We didn't. Now, Thinking 
about murder is not the same as murdering. So don't, don't make that jump, okay? Genesis 9.6 does not say he who thinks about shedding blood by his life, but it says, what does Jesus say? He's saying sin is sin. Actions, thoughts, all are the same before God and so righteous he cannot look on sin. Jesus is speaking in Matthew to a group of religious people who are hiding their dirty, rotten hearts behind a facade of goodness. And we have our own facades today. Sometimes we point at prisoners on death row all the while we harbor hatred, prejudice, or bitterness and internal murder against people who've wronged us. People of another race, people of another skin color, people of another country, people we've been at war with, people for whom Jesus died. He died for them too. Jesus says we're just as guilty as the guy on death row because sin happens on the inside. Some will ask about Lex talionis. Lex talionis, that's the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How, how does that relate to this? This law as found in the Old Testament was a law of like punishment, dictated that the punishment fit the crime. It established guidelines of restitution. It did not prescribe punishment as such, but it described, prescribed limited revenge. Limited revenge. And this passage that Jesus is, deals primarily with insults, not physical attacks. That's a whole other thing. Let's look at the root cause of crime. The root cause of crime. The Bible is our source of truth. The Bible is our authority. The Bible is our standard for faith and practice. The Bible says the root cause of all sin, including crime, is our fallen nature. And we're not going to take time to read all those passages. Galatians 5, 19, James 4, 1 to 2, uh, and then Romans 3, 9 to 12, our biggest indictment. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. It's only because of what Jesus has done that we can have our sins forgiven. Let's look at God's forgiveness. Since we all seem to have broken this commandment, if not indeed, then in thought, we need the hope of forgiveness. Is there hope? Yes. 1 John 1. I, I quote this and say this a lot. 8 through 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. No matter what the sin was, no matter what happened. Jesus Christ forgives. Does he forgive if we break the sixth? Yes. If we confess and repent. Are there consequences? Yeah, there might be. But there's also eternal life for all who believe in Jesus and receive his free gift of forgiveness. We read of many people in the Bible who broke the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Cain, 
the first murderer, King David, the Jewish leaders who had Jesus put to death, and even the apostle Paul, who consented to the stoning of Stephen and imprisonment and execution of other Christians. He confesses to that. Well, we're gonna see David and Paul and many others in heaven because Jesus died to pay for all sin, even murder. All of our sin can be forgiven. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us guidelines on how to operate in this, in this crazy world. And I just pray, God, that we would look to your word and we would live in the context of your love. And Father, we realize our deep need for your transformative power, not only in forgiving us, but changing our hearts to live in righteousness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you.